Um, the other thing, the other day I was having a conversation with my daughter, and she just brought up the the point is that um, my three year old she would you know sometimes be a three year old and she would say she would have baby talk like you know ah, daddy oh, yeah, yeah I love you blah 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 and then my daughter was trying to do the same my twelve year old did the same um, Bethany and she said and she said oh dad what if I did this I said you know when she does it it's really cute when you do it it's Silly, and and of course I'm glad she's just kind of playing. But if she really was 12, and she still behaved like the three-year-old, something is wrong, right? So, hopefully, we have this desire to answer that call. Okay, so now we know that there is a call. It speaks about maturity. Um, so <clears throat> now, okay, now we know that God has a plan. We have a call, and that plan is that we be, become mature, right? So we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But now then we come back to this verse, right? So 14, we, we, now we know what that call is. That call is that we may answer to God's plan that we may become mature, okay? Now the Bible has, there's a second part then talks, that, that Paul talks about. The second word that is toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. Okay, so then the question is, there is a prize. What is that prize? Okay, we said we need to let the Word of God interpret the Word of God. Now, this word prize appears only one more time in another part of the New Testament. And, and you know, hopefully this is also, this morning can also serve as a guide for us on how do we study the Word of God, right? It's a wonderful book, full of treasure, but... The other thing is, where else does this word prize appear? It may be it will help us understand what that prize is. So, if we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. And 25, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run a such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So, brothers and sisters, here it talks about a prize. Now, um, here in verse 25, it talks about everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. Now, I don't know if you know, but um, during that time, uh, even though they were under the Roman Empire rule, right before this, the Greek Empire ruled that, that time. And actually, that's why people of that time in the first century, they spoke in Greek. And that's why the New Testament is written in Greek. So there's a deep Greek influence. And um, actually, and as, as of course, what's the most famous thing that came from the Greeks? Olympics. Olympics. Great. Great answer. So the Olympics... 
But in those days, um, you didn't get a gold or a silver or a bronze medal. What you won was this thing that Paul talks about. You won a wreath, right? It goes around your head. And it's a wreath made of olive um, leaves. It's known as Cotinos or Stephanos. Can we project? So instead of winning a gold, silver, or bronze medal, you would win a wreath. Okay? So this is the prize. Now, it's interesting. Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Now, is it easy to win that wreath? No. That wreath speaks about all of the sweat and the time and the commitment that it took to win first place, right? So, today, of course, they win the gold, silver, and bronze medal, right? Um, you know, they, they are really going for the gold medal, right? If you get a silver and bronze, you're like, ah, yeah, you know, let me try in four years, right? So, you hear a lot of these uh, Olympians, they say, well, four more years, let me try for my gold, right? But, it says... They exercise self-control. So, Simone Biles, you know who she is? And she's the uh, gymnast, right? You know that she used to train 32 hours a week? Okay. Michael Phelps, you know who he is? The most decorated uh, Olympian ever, right? He says he used to practice every single day from three to six hours, okay, in the water. Then he would do separate exercises on dry land four to five days a week. Um, four to five days a week. Kristen Armstrong, which is a bike rider, she used to ride 20 to 25 hours a week. And then they did a study that says before the London Games, athletes had put in a combined 10,000 hours of practice before the Games. But did you know, Case Western University uh, psychologist did a study, and he studied over 3,000 of these athletes and said practice only accounted for 18% of people's performance. So there's a whole bunch of other things that they need to work on, one of them being they need to sleep well. Um, I'm sure you know who Tom Brady is. Um, even though he lost to my Philadelphia Eagles, he's still pretty good. Uh, do you know that he goes to bed at 8.30 every night, okay, 8.30, because he knows how important sleep is, right, he has this whole Tom versus time thing, and, you know, it's fine that he says Tom versus time, but it, the, the whole premise of it, he's, he's um, over 40, and he, he wants to play till he's 45, and somehow he's going to beat time, He's not going to be time. He's going to lose, right? He's going to get old and he's going to not be able to walk one day, whatever. But he's not going to be time, right? So it, it sounds good. But the whole premise of it is that he has to, had to make, pay, a, pay the price. And um, so he not only sleeps at 8.30 every day. He's also known to, during Super Bowl day, he actually takes a nap before the game. I think it's like an hour to two. I don't know how he takes a nap. If it were me, my, my legs and heart would be like jello and, you know, I, my mind would be racing. I'm never able to sleep right before a big event, but somehow he's able to do it. They also need to eat right. They did a show on Tom Brady and uh, this was during Thanksgiving. It's like, 
what would a Tom Brady Thanksgiving dinner look like? And some of these TV sportscasters and some of these other athletes, they actually tried some of that food, and some of them were ready to puke how bad it was, right? So, you see, he had to put in an effort to eat a certain way and then sleep a certain way. And so in order to win, I mean, imagine all of this um, March Madness that's going on. You know, how many of those games come down to like the last second shot? And, um, you know, that doesn't happen overnight, right? For us, our legs would be like so soft, we wouldn't be able to jump, right? But these guys, they're able to make these kind of last minute shots. So, you know, I, we could go on and on, talk about Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, etc. But you get the point. In order to win, there was a huge price that was paid. There was a huge effort that was put in place for what, what was there before to win that wreath. So there is a prize, and that prize is that wreath. So it's not so much about that wreath, right? It's just some olive leaves, right? But it's the glory of saying, wow, look at him on the podium. It really speaks about all the sweat, all the hard work that was put behind it. And so, so now we know what it takes, right? It talks about um, all of these things that, that need to be done right. So, brothers and sisters, how do we translate that into spiritual terms? Well, eating, we need, to, we need to read the Word of God. We talk about drinking water. Water speaks about the Holy Spirit. We talk about sleeping, right? We need to rest in the Lord. So there's some spiritual lessons that we can learn. But the important thing is this, that there is a price for this upward call. But it doesn't stop there, brothers and sisters. Now, we certainly know if we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. So we talked about this wreath or this prize. And so spiritually, what Paul tells us is this. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Actually, in the original, it's the Stephanos or the wreath of righteousness. In the future, there is laid up for me the, the wreath of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Right? And before this, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So, brothers and sisters, there is laid up for Paul a wreath of righteousness. Right? So, that's the price. Okay? And so, that's kind of the end. But interesting enough, if we read in, um, in the New Testament... This word wreath or Stephanos appears a few other times. Um, if we turn to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. So on the one hand, this wreath speaks about victory. It speaks about overcoming, right? But then it's, there's something deeper to that. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bowl, and a wreath was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, the, the, many of the uh, 
uh, translations would translate this into the word crown. But actually, this is the same word. And a wreath was given to him. And of course, this refers to our Lord Jesus. And another portion in the book of Revelation, also another verse, and that's Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden wreath on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Having a golden crown on his head. This word is also the word wreath. Okay? So, brothers and sisters, we know that um, after the Lord Jesus, we... Um, in, 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 in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about, um, uh, why don't we read there, right? Philippians chapter 2, it says, verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Brothers and sisters, we know that the Lord has ascended to the right hand of the Most High. And when we read in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, it talks about the Lord Jesus coming. And then, um, I don't think we have time to go there, but in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, it says, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. Right? Um, diadem is actually the word crown, right? So similar to the similar to the wreath, but it actually it says crown. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we know that the Lord Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right? So he has uh, ascended to the right hand of the Most High. He has won the victory. He has this wreath on his head. And this wreath is not just a wreath of victory. But it actually says it's a golden wreath. Why? Because he's a king of kings and lord of lords. So that wreath is not just a wreath of victory, but that wreath is also a crown of victory. So, but it doesn't stop there. The interesting part of this is, if you then read in another portion, and that is in Revelation chapter 5, and, you know, stay with me, I hope, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And here it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Now, this word reign is actually the word basileo. In other words, it's not just reign. It actually means to be kings. So, you have made them to be kingdom and priests to our God. And they will be kings upon the earth. Okay? So, hold that thought. So, now we know the Lord Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But here it talks about the men whom you have called from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
they will also be kings. So what did Paul tell us? Okay, so we know that. Uh, so if we read Second Timothy chapter two, let's turn to Second Timothy chapter two. I know it's a lot of verses, but these are very important verses. Second Timothy chapter two and verse. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twelve. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now I earlier said the word reign that we read in Revelation is the word basileo. But interesting enough, this word here reign is not basileo, it's sum basileo. Okay? What does sum mean? S-U-M. I don't know. It's not that important that you know Greek, but it's important for you know the thought. That the Holy Spirit uses this word sum basileo. Sum, it means with. It means co. So what does it mean? If we endure, we will co-reign with him. Brothers and sisters, what the Lord Jesus, what, the, what is God's plan? It's not that we just become sons, but we also become kings and that we can co-reign with him. In one of the verses, the Lord Jesus says, he who overcomes, he will sit down with me on my throne, just as I have, I have sat down on my father's throne. Brothers and sisters, so what does this mean? It's not just that we are not just talking about sonship. We're also talking about kingship. Okay? So, second picture. So, the golden wreath. What are we talking about? Coming up. It's the Caesar one. Ah. This is this is from Pinterest, um, and uh, obviously they couldn't. So um, if you if you notice when when you ever notice that they show like coins of like um, the early Roman times, they have a coin that shows Julius Caesar, and on his head there is this this crown. But because it's on a coin, and um, you can't see the color. So anyway, I took a Pinterest picture. But anyway, pretend he's Julius Caesar, right? So you see a golden wreath that speaks about kingship. And a lot of times they would wear this on their wedding day, right? But it is meant to represent royalty. It's meant to represent kingship. So brothers and sisters, now we start to see a little bit more of this picture. This prize is not just an olive wreath. It speaks of victory, of course. It speaks of the overcomers. It speaks about winning. But here, it talks about a different type of wreath. A wreath of crown. A, a, a wreath of gold. So, brothers and sisters, why is that? Isn't it interesting? Because if you think about it, on the one hand, we talked about this fact that the Lord's life is in us. And He wants us not just to be born again, not just to have His life, but somehow that that life may grow up. 
But brothers and sisters, did you realize that that life in us is the life of a king? That um, you may always have thought, well, you know what? I'm so envious of Prince he he Henry, Harry, and Prince William. Harry, right? Harry. And Prince William, like, oh, man, they have it made, right? They, they're royalty. Everything's handed down to them. They, they get access to millions of dollars. They live in a palace. But brothers and sisters, did you realize that you are royalty? When you accept the Lord Jesus into your hearts, you are royalty. Our Father is a king. His life is a life of a king. So brothers and sisters, not only is God's plan that we grow up and become mature, God's plan is that one day we will reign with Him. That life is not just a mature life of a son, but it's a mature life of a king. So P Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Okay? So, brothers and sisters, think about this perspective from Prince Charles. Do you guys know who Prince Charles is? He's the older prince, not the charming one. He's the older one, right? Not so nice looking one, right? His son is actually the nicer looking one. But anyway, that's not important. The important thing is, from Prince Charles' perspective, he's looking at his son, right? Hopefully, you know, Queen Elizabeth one day will finally kind of step aside when she's like 95 and let Prince Charles, I think is like 75. I don't know. I don't know how old he is. But finally step aside and let him be king, right? But if one day Prince Charles becomes King Charles and in his heart, he sees his son, William. His, his goal is that one day he can say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. From his perspective, he's rearing, you know, is Ezra in the room? He hates it when people say raising children. He talks about, it's about rearing children. Okay, fine. Prince, because so King Charles, hope for his son is that one day he may grow up. And one day, he may become just like him. Okay, a better looking version of Charles, but just like him, right? So, some, somehow he can be a mature young man that one day, I mean, you know, it's, it, unfortunately, like, it's not the perfect example because they're not a real kind of uh, royal uh, family because they don't really rule, right? But, you know, pretend like 500 years ago when they... Or if, if, if there's a monarchy that was a true monarchy, they would not just grow up, but then eventually they would have to rule the nation, right? So they have to be responsible young men. So from King Charles' perspective, that's about sonship. It's about growing up. But from everyone else's perspective, what um, Prince William is growing up to be is to become a king. So from everyone else's perspective, is kingship. But from Charles's perspective, it's sonship. So you see, it's essentially the same thing. But because that life is a royal life, that's why it's something about kingship. So now we start to see a little bit more, right? So God has this wonderful plan. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, to become sons, the adoption of sons, not adoption, to making of sons, to transforming into sons, glorification. But not only that, 
when we look at the prize, that prize is not just speaking about winning the race, but that prize is also speaking about a golden wreath. It speaks about kingship. So that's God's plan. Okay? Now, so now we've already, um, you know, spoken about this. Um, the, God's ultimate goal. But then the question is, what is the path? What is the process by which we attain to these, this wonderful plan that God has? How do we attain to sonship? How do we attain to kingship? What is the path? Now, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. Okay? We all call our Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father. But our Lord Jesus is the perfect example that has already gone before us. And we said, we're just following in his footsteps, right? The, the question is, do you want to answer his call? He said, come follow me. Come follow me. And then you will enter into your destiny. You will be predestined. You'll become mature. But what is that path? Now, we know that um, uh, uh, the... Um, the question is, um, what is that? What is that path? So, as we come back to this word wreath, we think about the prize. If you read in the New Testament, there is a third wreath that is mentioned in the Bible that will show us what the path is. Right? If you read in um, Matthew 27. Matthew 27 and verse 29. And after twisting together a wreath of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on his head. Brothers and sisters, verse 29 speaks about a crown of thorns. In the original, it's the same word, Stephanos. It's a wreath of thorns. Can we show that picture? Brothers and sisters, The Lord is the King of Kings. But He became King of Kings. Because he wore this thorn of this crown of thorns, this wreath of thorns. For your sake and my sake, in order to save us, in order to deliver us. He took a lowly place. He was rejected. He was spat on. They mocked him. 
And he died on the cross for us. In order to become king of kings, he took the lowliest place. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so brothers and sisters in order for God to accomplish his purpose in order for him to actually not just predestine us but um, in order to accomplish his purpose, the way towards sonship and the ways towards kingship is the way of the cross. So the Lord Jesus said, if anyone is willing, is want, if anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. So this was, so this was God's way uh, in order for us to be able to attain to sonship and kingship. The question, brothers and sisters, why does it require death? Why does it have to be this way? Why can't it just be, look, the Lord gives us his life, and then somehow... That's it, right? Wouldn't it be easier if he just gave us eternal life, we got saved, and then the next day he took us and we went to heaven? Wouldn't that be much easier? Well, the problem is this. The problem lies with us, right? Um, and the problem is the fact that there is sin. And so this matter of sin needed to be dealt with. So um, if... Um, uh, Now, we know that ever since Adam and Eve sinned, right? Remember, look at the condition of man. If you think about um, what is man's condition without the Lord, just look at look around you, right? You can go work at a company or you can look at school, all the um, backstabbing, all the cliques, all of the, you know, look at the politics, right? Apart from God. We're so far away. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, how can he even talk about sonship? How can he even talk about kingship? 
But there's all of this bad stuff that's with us. That stuff needs to be dealt with, right? So if you read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19... Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I have forewarned you. And so, brothers and sisters, Paul just went through a few examples to describe what we are in ourselves. Right? So in the flesh, all of the things are what's a part of us. So if you want to talk about glory, if you want to talk about perfection, maturity, all of these things need to be dealt with. And the way that they need to be dealt with um, is through the cross. Because Paul then goes on to say, and um, uh, of which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So brothers and sisters, there's a positive aspect that we have the life of the Lord Jesus in us. But there's a negative aspect, which is ourselves, our flesh, our selfishness, our pride. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what needs to happen. There needs to be less of us and more of Christ. Very simply put, that's the significance of the cross. And um, so, and, and maybe we don't all get it, but hopefully the Holy Spirit can can at least let us see a little bit of this. Why is it that the cross is needed? Because the negative needs to be dealt with. So, so when, in, in the verses that we read, Paul, ta Paul talks about the surpassing value of knowing the Lord Jesus. Now, it's, we certainly have to know Him. But not just know Him in our heads. Hopefully, we can also know Him in our experience. Now, what, if we come back to Philippians, let's come back to Philippians. So, um, so verse 8 says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. But what, what does then Paul go on to say? How do I know him? What do I need to know about him? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What does the cross signify? The cross signifies for the Lord death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, death always applies to the negative part. And resurrection always talks about the positive part. What does that mean? Brothers and sisters, as we die and as Christ lives in us, more and more, more and more, more and more, 
then you get sonship, you get maturity, you get kingship. Because that life is living more and more in us. And when people see us, they see less and less of us and more and more of Christ. They see less and less of selfishness, but they see more and more of that gentleness. They see less and less of pride, but they see more and more of humility. But brothers and sisters, there needs to be a death and resurrection. Remember that wreath of thorns. So brothers and sisters, that's what the cross speaks about. And, and this is the deep part of this message. The message is Christ and Him crucified. Now, it's very practical, brothers and sisters. Just think about it. It's almost like, um, if you think about the... Uh, sometimes we think, wow, the, the, the cross is so negative. Oh, I've heard so much about the cross. I don't want to hear about it. I've heard about it all my life. But brothers and sisters, think about it in the same way that you think about a knife. right? Now, a knife, in some ways, you think, oh, that's awful, right? You can use to kill. But you also know that a knife can be put in the hand of a doctor to save a life. Think about all the cancer patients, right? And uh, when you look at the picture, right, it's really gory, right? Uh, the picture of an operating room when the, the doctor has a knife in his hand and is about to approach the patient. And, you know, it could be like a horror movie and, and, you know, he might kill him. But actually, if you, you know, this is a really bad description of it. But my whole point is this. Ultimately, what should happen is that you see the doctor cutting into the patient and cutting out the bad parts, cutting out the tumors, right? So, brothers and sisters, we're like cancer patients with all of these bad things in us. Selfishness, um, you know, envy, and all of these things. And what the cross is, is just that, that knife to cut out those bad parts. So then, the life of Christ can grow in us. Now, we, we read about... Um, um, uh, the the fact that, that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Um, my memory is so bad now. Uh, I, I don't want to misquote it. Right? Um, I knew this as a kid, but my mind is going. Anyway, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Now, when that life in, is in us, all of that is already in there. So there's the potential to be, to have love, to have patience, to have kindness. The question is, do we want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Now, brothers and sisters, when we accept the Lord Jesus into our hearts, the nature of Christ is in us. So the patience of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, it's there. But um, what we realize, I don't know, sometimes you might think about the fact that, hey, Sometimes I'm patient and sometimes I'm not patient, right? So, you know, um, if I think about, if you think about your own relationship with your siblings, right? It's, you know, if you have siblings, I'm sure some days you have good days and some days you have bad days, right? Some days you argue, some days you're best friends, right? That's the wonderful thing about siblings, right? But the thing is this, we, we, we find this, this challenge in us is that, you know, sometimes we're patient, right? And then sometimes we're gentle. But, you know, as soon as we go and drive out into the streets of New York and someone cuts in front of us, we honk at them and we yell at them and scream at them. I don't know if you do that, but hopefully you don't. But 
sometimes I, I find myself doing that, right? You, you come out of the meeting, you're so happy. Oh, wow, that was a wonderful breaking of bread meeting. Wonderful message. You go out, you drive, and then boom. So, but that, so that's our struggle, right? But what is the cross doing? What is the work that the Lord is doing? Is that somehow that nature of Christ can become the character of Christ. What's the difference between nature and character? Character means that, um, the nature of Christ means that sometimes I'm patient, but that patience might come and then it goes. But then, when the Lord does the work in us and we grow up and we become mature and He changes us, that nature becomes a character of Christ. So that um, when other people see us, they'll not just say, hey, look, that person has patience. But that person is a patient person. That person is not just, not just occasionally it has gentleness, but that person is a gentle person. So that that's a part of who that person is now. It characterizes who that person is. You get that? So it's, it's something permanent, right? So we think, we, 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 you probably heard about this in the past, right? What is that work of transformation that the Lord is doing? Now, if you think about the simplest example, and I've, I've said this many times, right? If you take carbon, if you take graphite, like pencil lead, you, you write, you can able to write, and it's, it's it, because it's very brittle, right? It, it breaks off, right? Really easily. And then you can see the trace that it leaves behind, and that is writing. Right. So um, so you can't do that with a computer keyboard. But anyway, so you imagine you do it with a pencil. Right. So that's what you, you write with. But you take that same carbon and you put it under high heat and high temperature and one and and let it sit for millions of years. It becomes diamond. Right. And diamond is the hardest material known to man. It can cut through stuff. So what that means is it's hard as anything. So that means it's not going anywhere. It used to be brittle, it used to be opaque, now it's this very beautiful stone that's very hard, right? So that's the work of transformation. But that is means from nature to the character of Christ. So brothers and sisters, um, so hopefully we got a little bit of a glimpse of not just what the goal that God is after, but the little bit of the process. And hopefully the other brothers can share this as well. But you see what we're trying to get to. So, what is the goal? What is the calling? Is that we may become sons. Not just sons, but kings. One day we can reign with Him. But in order to reign with Him, we have to be responsible young men, responsible young women. We have to reflect who the Lord Jesus is. But there's all these things holding us down, right? All of this, our flesh, our soul life, our pride, all of the world... Those things need to be dealt with so that so those need to be dealt with by the cross. Right. So um, and when that and the Lord then starts to change us and transform us. So what is the cross? Very practically, the in, in Romans chapter 820, it causes all things to work together for good. Brothers and sisters, it's nothing mystical. It's not that, oh, one day um, somehow I'll have to go to a monastery and isolate myself from the world. No, it causes all things to work together. Everything we deal with on a daily basis should help us to grow up. Whether it's um, dealing with uh, 
a difficult brother or sister, whether it's dealing with the fact that you were hoping to get an A, but for some reason you ended up getting a C, right? And then your parents are on your back and say, how could you get a C? How are you not getting straight A's? Uh, it could be anywhere from uh, a friend being bullied. It could be um, depression. It could be struggles that we have, right? Setbacks that we have in our lives. All things work together for good. So the, the thing is, um, how do we deal with those situations? When someone says something to us, do we escalate? Do we argue back? Do we fight back? Or is it that we allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our lives? All things work together for good. So, um, and... Uh, I just wanted to kind of read you just kind of one last thing. And um, uh, just a little bit about what I mentioned about Prince William. Um, and we may think, well... You know, every day all he does is smile for pictures and, you know, looks good. He, he's pretty good, except he's losing some hair. But anyway, so uh, you always think that, hey, you know, he just, you know, married this beautiful uh, princess and now he has wonderful kids. But actually, that's not his life. He actually had a fairly um, illustrious upbringing. Right. And I'm sure this was the plan of his father. So he was born in 1982. He went to Jane Miner's Nursery School. Two years later, went to Weatherby. And then he went to um, uh, Eaton School, which apparently is pretty well-known. He studied geography, biology, history. So just like all of us, he had to go through school. Uh, during a gap year between school and university, he went to Mauritius, spent time in Africa. He trekked with the army in Belize and worked as a Raleigh International Volunteer in Chile. But it was, he says, his short stint working as a laborer on a dairy farm on, in southwest England that he enjoyed the most. So he had a fairly, um, um, you know, down-to-earth stuff that he did. And this ultimately helped him to become who he became. The Duke was taken on, has taken on his mother's legacy, Prince Diana, legacy by getting heavily involved with charities, working to help survivors of the December 2004 tsunami, and to protect endangered species in Africa. He's also patron of the Young People's Homelessness, Homelessness Charity Center Point, as was Diana. Having become president of the Football Association, the Duke teamed up with David Beckham in 2010 to spearhead England's successful bid to stage a 2018 World Cup. William graduated in 2005 with a, with a Class 2-1 degree in geography, making him one of the most academically successful royals. He then chose to join his younger brother Harry for officer training at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. The start of his military career in 2006 came after months work experience during which he shadowed financial staff in the city of London, acted as a rescue novice with a mountain rescue team and learned about land estate management. After graduating, he served as an officer in the household cavalry, blues, and royals before entering training with the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy. But if one day he needed to be commander-in-chief, he probably would have started from the bottom, right? So he, he learned to be a regular soldier. While he was part of the RAF, he took part in 156 operations and rescued 149 people, qualifying as a helicopter captain in 2012. 2012, he was deployed to the Falkland Islands 
prompting a diplomatic war with Argentina, which claims the islands which calls the Malvinas. so on and so forth. So, brothers and sisters, you see, for his whole life, his father kind of designed his life so that one day he would become a responsible young man so that he could one day become a king. And he started at the bottom. He was a regular soldier. But if one day, imagine if, you know, years ago, this was a monarchy that actually had to reign, he would have to be the commander-in-chief as well. So, brothers and sisters, it all started from the beginning. He had to be trained. He had to go through all of that so that one day he could be ready to be a king. So, brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful calling. And when Paul says, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, I hope, hopefully, what, through what we've read this morning, it becomes a little bit clearer. Now, just one more uh, thing that I wanted to cover. And... Um, so we talk about maturity, we talk about sonship, we talk about kingship. There's a very interesting verse, I think, that, that we'll use to conclude this morning's message. And that is in uh, Philippians chapter 3. Let's go back to that uh, verse. Um, Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not, uh, sorry, um, I'm sorry. I meant to, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, brothers and sisters, I think this is important. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible talks about resurrection. Okay? What does that mean? So, if we're alive today and the Lord were to come back, the wonderful thing is that hopefully we would be raptured. Right? And then, um, the Lord Jesus will then come back and he will, he will come back a second time to this earth, step on Mount of Olives, and then he will become king of kings and lord of lords and reign for a thousand years. And hopefully we can join him. Right. So that's our hope. OK. So this is what when we talked about co-reigning with him is that one day the Lord is going to reign on this earth for a thousand years. Now, the Bible says to him who overcomes, we may also be able to reign with him. And if you read Luke chapter 19. There it talks about some will reign over ten cities, some will reign over five cities, right? So that's a, just an interesting part of that. But brothers and sisters, how about the people that died? How about brothers and sisters that already died, that have already passed away? There's going to be a resurrection and they're going to come to life again, okay? So when, when we talk about that, when, is, when are all the things, when are we basically going to um, hand in our homework essentially, right? The Bible talks about the fact that we're all going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. And we all need to make an account of what we did while we were alive. And for those that died, they will, raise up, they will rise up, they will resurrect. And for us that are alive, hopefully we'll still be alive, we'll be raptured and we'll all be in the clouds before the judgment seat of Christ. And then, 
This is when we talk about the reward, the prize that we talked about, the wreath, and then the ability to reign with him, right? So resurrection is very important. So, but the thing is, the very interesting about this verse, verse 11 is, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's a fact that all of us believers, because of his life in us, we will all resurrect. But it's very interesting that Paul talks about attaining to the resurrection. What does that mean, attaining to the resurrection? In the New Testament, the word resurrection is the word anastasis. Just remember the Disney character Anastasia? It's a really wonderful name, to be honest. It means resurrection. But anastasis, ana means up. Stasis means to stand up or to rise up. Right? So basically, resurrection means to rise up. That's very simple. Most of the places in the New Testament, almost all of them, the word used for resurrection is anastasis. Okay? But very interesting, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, this word resurrection is actually more than just resurrection. It's not just anastasis. The word is ex. Anastasis, and it's the only place that it appears in the in the Bible. X means to come out of. Okay, so brothers and sisters, what does X Anastasis mean? It means that remember we said that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, to become mature, to be kings. What this means is not that just we raise from the dead. All of us, you know, there's nothing special about for us Christians to raise from the dead. But ex anastasis means to stand out at the resurrection. So, brothers and sisters, what does that mean? It simply means that we will win that prize. We will stand out. We will attain to God's purpose. That's why Paul says, attain to the resurrection from the dead. Attain to ex anastasis. That that day, when the Lord Jesus was seating before the judgment seat of Christ, he says, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of my rest. Come receive your reward. Remember, what is that reward? That wreath. Basically, that wreath speaks of all of the hard effort. All of the taking up our cross and following the Lord has a result. We're overcomers. We're victors. Not only that, though. That, that wreath is a wreath of gold. That we may be able to reign with Him for a thousand years on this earth. Brothers and sisters, that's why Paul says that I, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. At that point, then Paul says, not that I have already obtained it. He didn't achieve it yet or have already become perfect. It's the same thing, right? To become mature. He's still pressing on. So brothers and sisters, Paul, even at the, while well, he was at the peak of his spiritual life, he said, I haven't attained it, but I press on because he felt he hadn't reached it yet. So it's not just resurrection, but an ex-anastasis. So brothers and sisters, that's the encouragement, is that we press on towards the goal. We press on because we haven't attained to it. What is that goal? To win the prize. What is that prize? It's the wreath. It's not just the wreath of victory, not the wreath of the Olympics, that we've won the race, but also the wreath of gold, that we may reign with Him, so that we may answer to His upward call, which is that, we may become sons. We may become mature. We may have glory. But what is that path? We were reminded of that third wreath, the, the wreath of thorns, right? 
the way is that there's all this baggage that we have that the Lord has to deal with and to get rid of so that we can have more of Him and less of us. So hopefully the Holy Spirit can use these words to continue to speak to us and hopefully establishes a good foundation of what is this verse talking about. And through the weekend, through the sharing of other brothers, through the fellowship, we may come to understand this even more. Maybe we can bow with a word of prayer. Lord, we commit these words back into your hands. Lord, the words of man are so limited and uh, utterance is so limited. So, But Lord, we pray that um, you may provide clarity and your Holy Spirit may continue to do the work of interpretation. Lord, uh, we thank you for these young brothers and sisters. Lord, that they're able to hear these words at a young age in their lives. Lord, we, our prayer is that Amy and John not just be teaching, Lord, but somehow... Um, there may be a real catch of what is it that you're doing. There may be a willingness to cooperate, to answer to your call, our Lord, and to be able to win that prize. Lord, to be able to, just like Paul, have this heart to press on. So, Lord, we pray that you may impress this upon our hearts. We thank you for this time in Jesus' precious name.